Thank you, Jenny. It's a lot of pressure. Now I feel like I have to make everybody cry. So I always heard the best messages were you had to go along with the theme, 15 minutes, you know, make them laugh, make them cry, 15 minutes, say goodbye. And everybody likes that. So this one is probably going to be a little bit longer than 15. Um, but uh, really just because of, of what it is that I want to talk about today. I know um, <clears throat> in visiting with Jonathan, uh, Pastor Jonathan, one of the things that, uh, I mean, I've known Jonathan and Reagan now for 24, 25 years, something like that. So we had, actually, this is pretty cool. The, the way I remember how long I've known Jonathan is my wife and I got married 25 years ago this week. So this was our 25th anniversary. Um, and so we actually met them in that first summer uh, that we got married. So I know I've known Jonathan now for almost 25 years. Um, but as Jonathan and I were uh, just kind of talking, we spend a lot of time when uh, our leadership team gets together in Lawrence, uh, just visiting about what's going on in the world and talking about what's going on in the world. And it, and as we were talking about that and talking about this Sunday, Jonathan was like, man, listen, he goes, it's just one of those, it's one of those times where if we as the church aren't addressing what's going on in the world, then we're a failure, right? We're failing if we don't address what's going on in the world. So his heart to me and his message to me is, hey, take a minute, take 10 minutes, take an hour, take, I'm not going to take a whole hour, but communicate, you know, what God has on your heart and communicate, um, really that try to communicate the essence of what the kingdom is saying uh, to the church at this time. And so I'm going to attempt to do that today. Uh, it's from my perspective. It's not going to be perfect, but we're going to ask God to work through me to, uh, uh, to share a perspective about what God is doing and, and what the kingdom, how, how we are to go about building his kingdom and living out his kingdom in a time, uh, in the times that we're living in. So I guess my first question to you, and this is more of kind of a casual setting, but how many of you have either been one or all of the above, confused, angry, overwhelmed uh, by what's going on in the world lately? Anyone? Okay. I'm in the same place. And, and I think anybody that's, that's actually thinking, that cares about other people, uh, is in the same place as well. And so... This morning I'm going to share a little bit about what I think a healthy kingdom perspective is in the time that we live. And please note that these are not my uh, sum total of thoughts that I'm sharing this morning. Um, in fact, I'm a, for those of you that know the Enneagram, I'm a 6'5", uh, wing 5, which means that I spend most of my life thinking, okay? And it's a tragedy, like it's hard to get me. <laughs> It's hard to get me out of my head sometimes. Just ask my wife. It's, she, I'll just be sitting there, and she's like, I know you're thinking something. What are you thinking about? And I'm like, I don't. It's just if I start talking, then it takes too long. And, <laughs> and so, but I, spill, I spend a great deal of time thinking about uh, these things that are going on and trying to get God's perspective on these things. But I also know that even as I think about those things, that I'm affected by the world around us. Uh, and that in my humanity, sometimes I miss things. Um, 
And so I'm praying that this morning as I communicate that Jesus washes over whatever is of me and not of him, but that he communicates his heart for the kingdom uh, within what I'm going to say. So let me pray for us this morning and then we'll get started. God, I ask that as we come together, uh, Father, that, um, that you would speak to us, that through uh, your heart as a good father on this Father's Day, that you would uh, bring about uh, your life, bring about your hope, your reconciliation, uh, God, and your desire um, for all of us to live the life that you have for us um, in a way that honors you. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right. So I think in the short time that we have, I think God wants to remind us of a few things um, about what it means to be in his kingdom and to live in his kingdom. And, and really the first and foremost, there's an anchoring truth that I think that all of us need to have uh, set in our hearts and to be firm in our lives. And that anchoring truth is that we are all made in God's image. We're all made in God's image and we are all created as God's imagers. So not only did he make us and create us in a way that he looked at us and he said, man, you are good. Not only are you good, but you are very good. But then God also created us as imagers. So whatever it is that we set our hearts on, our affections on, um, our thoughts on, that is what we image. Just based on the very way that God made us, we have the ability to duplicate and replicate things that we set our heart and mind on. And so why is it that we are supposed to put Jesus first and set our hearts and minds on what God wants in his way? Because we're imagers. And if we do that, we will image God. But if we make a different choice and we set our heart and mind and thoughts somewhere else, what are we going to do? We're going to image those things, right? And so first and foremost, we need to know that we are imagers. And so the image and the ability to image him is really what gives us dignity, it gives us value, it gives us purpose, it gives meaning to our lives, because that is what makes us sacred, is that we are made by the hand of God. So, when we come into a relationship with Jesus, okay, when we come into a relationship with Jesus, something amazing happens, because we are imagers. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul talks to the Ephesians a little bit about what it is that happens when we come into a relationship with God. And it says this, it says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying Satan, the commanders of the powers and the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way. Let me repeat that. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So I want us to see a picture here, okay? And I know oftentimes that 
that when we read the scriptures, I guess we don't have it up there, so you're just listening to me. But, but oftentimes when we read the scriptures, it, it, especially at church, it makes me think of, of, I was a PK, right? So I was, I was a pastor's kid. So I always thought that when a scripture or a verse went up or when the pastor started reading from the Bible, that that was the time to take a nap. Right, because it was like I could read that later if I wanted to. So, or maybe oh, I've read that before. I've heard that before. So I would like take a little siesta, and then I'd try to tune back in for okay. So what's he going to say about that? But the the reality is is that you ought to tune me out when it's just me talking, and actually listen when we read the scripture because the scripture is the thing. You don't have to nod that. Anne is like, yeah, that's right. Just tune him out. Tune him out. But the reality is it's the scriptures that ought to inform us and how we are living, right? And so these first two verses indicate something amazing, and that is that we are in this battle. We're in a battle in the unseen realm, that there is something bigger that's going on in the world that we may not be aware of. And then when you get into the next verse, it talks about how there is a spirit at work in those who refuse to obey God. So if we choose to obey something else, if we choose our own way, then we're going to begin to image those things or do those things based upon what we believe or what it is that we're seeking after. And then as you get into verse 4, we see that it is because of God's love and God's mercy that we can be set free from these powers that are trying to keep us in bondage and trying to keep us from being free. It says, we were all once under the influence of Satan, but then now we are seated with Christ. So as you get into to verse 6, it talks about how no longer do we have to live the way that we were living, but now we have the opportunity through what Jesus did to actually be elevated, to be sitting with Jesus in the heavenly realms, to be able to see things from a new perspective. Now, how often is it that even, even once we come into a relationship with Jesus, that we tend to stay down here, kind of seeing the things the way that the world sees things, living in the world the way the world lives, and we don't realize the freedom that God has given us to say, no, you no longer have to live under the spirits, the principalities of darkness that seek to influence you to live according to their ways, but you have the opportunity to come and be seated with me and to begin to see the world in a brand new way. And that's a beautiful thing. Because if we want the world to be able to change, if we want the world to be more like, we, that more like Jesus was and more like Jesus said it ought to be, then where ought, where, where ought our mind to be? Where, at our, where should our heart be? It ought to be seated with Jesus, being able to see things from his perspective. Colossians 1.13 says it this way, For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his, his dear son. And so we're literally transferred from one kingdom into another kingdom. And that's hard for us to see sometimes, right? We live in this scientific, rationalistic world, and when people begin to talk about that there's this spiritual warfare going on, that there's this battle in the heavenlies that's wanting to take your attention and, or to, to move you in this direction and keep you away from living the life that God has for you, it can be easy to say, well, 
It doesn't make sense. I don't understand that. But it's a reality that we have to begin to see and begin to walk into if we want the world as we know to change it, to change. So here's the problem. Before you came to know Christ, and maybe you're in a place yet where you don't know Christ, but you're in um, a spiritual battle. There is a spiritual battle over your life. And for those of you that have come into a relationship with Christ, now you have the opportunity to actually see what this battle is and to see what's going on. So here we are, God's people seated with Christ, seeing the battle, not being duped by it, not being think that, not thinking that it's just, oh, this is just everyday life, but we actually see it. And then in verse 7, he continues. And he says, God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. This is a gift from God. So there was nothing that you did that you can take credit for. Even in coming into your relationship with Christ, it wasn't about you. It was about Him drawing you into relationship. And then he says, salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so no one can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things that He planned for us long ago. So as a follower of Jesus, this ought to be our reality. This ought to be where you and I are called to operate from. Understanding that the good things that we have are because we are seated with Christ Jesus. That he has a new place for us, a new perspective for us. I think of it this way. It's like climbing trees, right? When you're down in the forest and you're just down amongst all the trees, you can see a few things and they're pretty clear to you, right? They're very obvious, they're very real. But what happens when you climb the tree, you get up to the top, and you begin to look from there? It changes everything, right? It gives you a whole new perspective on what's going on. You may be lost and be able to find your way out. You may be able to find things that are going to help you survive that weren't there on the ground. And so being able to lift and to elevate your perspective can change everything. And that is what I believe that God wants for us to do in the time that we live in today. He wants us to sit with him so that our perspective might be elevated. To be able to see things the way that God sees them. So I'm going to move into Matthew chapter 16 now. Because I think one of the things that Jesus did that was so incredible was being able to speak to people to get them to look at things in this different perspective. Okay, we have the opportunity at all times to be seated with Christ. The disciples had the opportunity to be there with Jesus for three years, right? And during those three years, what was Jesus doing to them? The same thing he's wanting to do with us. He's wanting to get them to live by a different perspective. He wants to get them to begin to see things in a new way. And this new way is what we call the kingdom of God. He wants people to see with a kingdom perspective. So in Matthew 16, we find Jesus talking to his disciples. And it says here, The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. 
He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. So Jesus is basically saying, hey guys, if you can't see what's going on here, you're blind. You're missing things. Now think about this. When we look at the book of Matthew from chapter 4 through chapter 15, right before this, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is out healing the sick, the blind can see, the deaf can hear, people who are oppressed are being set free, people who, um, who have been... Uh, overcome by demonic manifestations. Jesus is setting them free. So you see all of these things happening in the previous uh, 11 chapters. And you know, or we should assume, that during this time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are kind of walking along, following Jesus, and they're going, okay, what is going on with this guy? What is happening with this guy? Why is our world starting to be turned upside down? And so when you look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, you, you have to see them in terms of who they are. The Pharisees and the Sadducees really were the political and the religious leaders of the day, right? And so Jesus, knowing that, <laughs> began to talk about them and began to talk to them in a way that was confusing to them, but also confusing to his disciples. And so his disciples, as we continue on, they're trying to figure out, okay, what do these people have to do with Jesus? Why does Jesus not always treat them as nicely as we think Jesus should treat people? Because Jesus was the nicest guy that ever lived, right? No, I don't think that he was probably the nicest guy that ever lived, but he was the most truthful guy that ever lived. And so the disciples were a little confused about his relationship with them. And so in verse 5, we pick up and it says, When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed this amongst themselves and said, It's because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussions, Jesus asked, You have little faith. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in the bread but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So Jesus is very intentionally training and teaching them how to see things. Jesus is wanting them to have a new perspective, a different perspective on what's going on in the world. What is the world typically concerned about? Who has power? Who's going to be in power? And how to stay in power? Or how to gain that power? So what do the Sadducees and the Pharisees represent? They represent the religious and political factions of the day. 
Ways of seeing the world without the providential hand of God. Ways of seeing the world or interpreting the world without acknowledging the goodness and the resource of God. And ways of living in the world without embracing the reality of who God is. When we choose religious systems, broken ideologies, and political factions to gain power or preserve the status quo, then we risk looking at the world through the trees rather than seeing it from the heavenly places where we are to be seated with Christ. Every time the church sides with religious and political factions, God's people, and therefore the rest of the world, lose out. Again, it is with God's perspective that we begin to see the battle being waged over mankind. That there are serious dark forces that, there, that are at work in the world even now to lure, to manipulate, to influence, and to steer people away from God. And by steering them away from God, steering them away from freedom, away from healing, away from restoration, and away from unity. So when God's people get caught up in or bow down to political narratives, we risk yielding ourselves to a divisive and critical spirit that pits one group of image bearers against another group of image bearers. An example of this in the time that I grew up, which I'm well aware looking out here was long before most of you, is the religious right in the 1980s. It was a powerful coalition of, of um, religious leaders from across the United States who were seeking justice. Well, the question is, were they seeking justice or were they seeking power, prosperity, and a place at the table? And when I look back upon that time, I often wonder if they were co-opted as a constituency of voters. Did they become a voting block but make little gains toward a more just country? You know, it was during that time that the number of imprisoned grew, the war on drugs was a failure, the number of divorces and single-family homes skyrocketed, and our inner cities continued to deteriorate. It's interesting to me that the quest for power will often leave few unscathed. And once compromised, anyone can become a tool of the enemy, no matter how noble the beginning intentions. And so I believe the challenge for us is to be caught up in the perspective of God's kingdom, to be able to see the forces that are at work so that we aren't co-opted by those things. And so that we can live by God's narrative rather than the narratives of the day that choose to influence us one direction or another. To divide by race, by gender, by socioeconomic status will ultimately cause us to tear down mutual good goodwill and to replace it with suspicion towards the others that God has placed in our life. Now it's interesting because I walk with uh, people that I know, that I love, that I care about, um, that I knew that this deep-seated narrative would be triggered by the killing of George Floyd. 
And I think if any of you have relationships with African-American brothers and sisters and you didn't think that there was going to be a deep sense of injustice or hurt or pain by what was caused, by what, was, by what happened to George Floyd, then somehow you're missing out. You're not tuned in. Because when something like that happens, it should bring hurt and pain to all of us. And what equally saddens me is how quickly that grieving and that pain was co-opted by political factions to stir up and to exacerbate division rather than focusing on the problems that needed to bring us together as a people. You know, I'm enraged and angered that people continue to use the black community as pawns for political games. It's maddening and it's wrong. And they continue to stir the most deep-seated and very real fears of people to manipulate. But my question really is, as I've sat and pondered this, is should this surprise us? And the answer is no. It really shouldn't surprise us because this has been happening throughout human history. That outside the goodness of God and the restoration of God, this happens time and time again to people after people. The world, empowered by dark spiritual forces, tells us that there is only the oppressors and the oppressed, and that the struggle will move on endlessly throughout history unless, by some great evolutionary chance of fate, the oppressors and the oppressed arrive at some future utopia brought about by a more noble oppressed people. Well, that's not going to happen. History and common sense say that that doesn't work. And it's curious to me that Jesus did not view things this way either. Jesus looked for a faith. He looked for a believing loyalty in God over position and power. I want us to consider a moment, and this is something that I've been having conversations with other pastors about, but I want us to consider a moment one of the things that I find very interesting um, it's just a, a small story within the Bible. Because we see time and, time and time again, we see how Jesus treats the minority, the poor, the oppressed. Um, we see how he treated the, the woman who had been accused of adultery, right? And giving her the most loving response because he saw her as one made in the image of God that could be taken from here and restored to a place of sitting, sitting with Father God. And, and as we see that and we see Jesus' response to all these different people, it occurred to me that there's, there's one interaction that's rather different from that and a little bit odd if we think of it in terms of Jesus always reaching out to, to those who were seemingly at the lowest places in society. And, and it's this one where Jesus is actually has an interaction with a Roman centurion. And so the Romans at that time were the ruling people, right? The conquering nation that, I mean, they were oppressing people all over the world. 
Um, and it's interesting that it really was because of Christianity that the Roman Empire was brought to its knees because they saw that there was a different way of doing things, a different way of living. The Christians demonstrated that and ultimately brought that empire to its knees. But it's interesting, Jesus' interaction with this Roman centurion who represented the oppressor of the day. And the centurion, um, when you look at him, Jesus' words to him, as the centurion came, he had a little child that was sick, and, and he said, hey, just say the word and my child will be healed. And Jesus looked at him, and these are the words he said. He said, greater faith has no, there's, I have seen no greater faith in anyone of all of Israel. And Jesus didn't mock him. Jesus didn't spit on him. Jesus didn't diminish him or attempt to destroy him. Rather, Jesus chooses this guy to say, greater faith, I have not seen any greater faith in all of Israel than what you just demonstrated. Why did that happen? Well, I think the, the story tells us there that it was because the Roman centurion had the ability to humble himself and to see himself from a different perspective and to be able to see God from a different perspective that he placed his loyalty and he placed his allegiance in Jesus. And he said, Jesus, if you're going to change things, I can trust that and I will trust you. And through that, Jesus was like, man, I haven't seen such great faith in all of Israel. And my thought to us is that we too have the opportunity, just as the centurion, just as the woman at the well, just as the woman who had committed adultery, to make choices, to be able to choose Jesus despite our circumstances, despite what is happening in the world. But how do we do this? How do we live by faith? When the greater narrative informs us how we're supposed to live in the world. And so in 2 Corinthians, Paul says this. He says, in, uh, it's in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, he says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. So how do we respond to the world around us? I believe it's what Paul was telling the Corinthians here. It's by becoming ambassadors of reconciliation, ambassadors of the kingdom of God beginning to understand and live by a perspective and a narrative that is so different from the world that other people would say, how is it that you're living to be able to live in unity, to be able to live in reconciliation, to be able to live um, by granting grace and forgiveness? But it's interesting that those things only happen when we begin to see how they were applied to our own life, the goodness of God applied to our own life that we ought to then apply uh, to other image bearers and to other fellow people. 
Another pastor, Mike Patton, says it this way, and I want us just to maybe close your eyes and listen to this one, because there's a lot in here that is, is very good and very helpful. And this is what he says. He says, when God captures us and renews our heart, we don't have to hold on to anger, fear, doubt, or shame. But that salvation isn't meant to stop inside our own heart. The people of God are then called to participate in God's work of bringing the kingdom to bear in this world through acts of justice, peace, and mercy. It's a calling into participation with God in His redemptive work in the world. There are those in our society who are hurting. They're scared. They're crying out for justice and for mercy. They're angry. They feel hopeless. But our God is a God of hope. What gives hope is that there is a God who moves in times like these, a God who has a special care and concern for those who are oppressed, a God who knew the world would see times like these and who loves the widow, the orphan, and the oppressed. So what is it that we do? How is it that we become ministers of reconciliation? to be able to go about doing what God is asking us to do and to live at that higher level. And I would say that there are four things this morning, and I'll, I'll close with these, but there are four practical things that we can do to be those that bring God's love and reconciliation to the world. And the first one has to do with intake. And by that, I mean reduce social media intake. One of the most helpful things that I did, and it was honestly, it was brought on by our, our 14-year-old daughter, is I had been, you know, watching the news or listening to podcasts and all of these things, and this was a few weeks ago. And I was sitting in the car with her, and she looks over at me, and she's like, I mean, I was actually driving, which is even scarier, but she was like, Dad, where are you? I was like, what? She's like, where are you? I'm like, honey, I'm right here, I'm driving. She goes, no, Dad, you're like somewhere else completely. And it hit me in that moment. It's like my mind was so consumed and my mind was so running with all the things of the world that you see and hear and the inputs and everything else that it just became overwhelming. And I think for many of us that, I mean, I, I have the privilege and honor as a father on this Father's Day of, of monitoring my kids' screen time. It's disturbing, right? And I assume that yours is too if you actually look at it. But sometimes we just gotta, we've gotta shut that down. And we've gotta tune into a different voice. We have to tune into a different narrative. We have to begin to open up our Bibles, begin to look at it, begin to slow down our mind and say, God, what are you saying about this situation? It's okay to listen to social media, to have people that you like to listen to, but what are you putting first? What narrative is it that you are living by? What narrative is it that you are feeding your soul with? The second thing is to do the hard work of dealing with your own heart and motives. And that's the biggest challenge. That as you shut down those other things and begin to open up the Word of God, it's not like it's a neutral, you know, a neutral playing ground. 
as you begin to open up the Word of God, what's God going to do? God's going to begin to challenge you on what you're thinking and why you're thinking it and how you see the world and how you interact with the other people around you. He's going to begin to challenge you on what you see as justice. He's going to begin to challenge you to do something about that. He's going to begin to challenge you to actually begin to live by the narrative that he has. How do I love people? How do I care for people? How do I bring reconciliation? How do I begin to understand and to know other people, to begin to empathize with them in a way that my life will change so that I can be a benefit and a blessing to other people? It's not a neutral thing. When you begin to open up the Word of God, it requires transformation. And that God is going to begin dealing and working in your heart and with your mindsets. I think the third thing that can't be overlooked is prayer. You know, the enemy blinds us to the power of prayer, just like the enemy blinds us to the fact that there is actually a war in the heavenlies that is taking place. We like to think that this is just a people-to-people problem, and a lot of it is people-to-people, but it's people-to-people influenced by the narratives that they are getting in the heavenly realms. And so if we don't pray, if we don't ask God to begin to silence those voices, but begin for his voice to be proclaimed, then we're missing out. We're missing out on one of the largest callings and the benefit, biggest benefits and blessings that God has for us. And we miss out on being able to be seated in that heavenly place with Father God to be able to look at the world and his perspective. And then finally, the fourth one is, be a conduit of reconciliation between people and God and people and one another. This is one of the things I love about the tactics project that many of you are doing this summer is it's going, in some ways, almost to force you to begin asking hard and difficult questions of other people. And I would encourage you that as you're asking those questions of others, it's kind of like Jenny mentioned this morning, that at the same time, you've got to begin asking those questions of yourself first. What is it that I really believe about this? Why do I believe that? And that's going to be a challenge for you, but it's going to be a beautiful thing because God can use those moments to change your heart, but also to connect with other people and to help understand other people and where they are coming from. You know, one of the one of the uh, most interesting things and, and, I mean, to me, even fun, sometimes it's not fun, but it's been fun, things that I've been a, be able to be a part of over the last four years and is an organization called Justice Matters. And it's an organization in Lawrence, Kansas that, you know, we're looking at, at different things. We essentially started by Uh, calling our community together to ask our community, what is it that causes you not to be able to sleep at night? And so out of those things, you know, there were, there was a ton of different things that came up within our community. And so we began one by one attempting to address those things. And so one of the things that came up time and time again uh, was this issue of racial reconciliation and how it affects our criminal justice system. And so with my former background as an attorney, that was one of the things where it's like, man, I think I can get in there and I can do some things to help. 
but it's what's been interesting to me is as I've gone in there, I have learned so much about the criminal justice system and about how it works and about how there are things both in Topeka and at a local level that are causing it not to work in a way that is, that is equal across the board for everybody. And, and those things are very easy to see just when, when you look at things statistically, but much harder to change, right? Because it takes time for systems to change. And so it's getting in there and doing the hard work. And so as we've gotten in there and begun to do the hard work, it was interesting to me that there was a, a group of, of people who wouldn't join in to doing this work, uh, namely a lot of uh, my fellow pastors and evangelicals in the town, because they would have to work with people that they weren't comfortable working with. And so another group of us <clears throat> got in there and we're like, hey, we don't care who we're working with. We're going to do this. We can be co-belligerents, okay? So we don't have to agree with everybody, but if it's going to bring about justice and it's going to help people be treated as God would want people to be treated, we're going to jump in there and do it. And so <clears throat> me and one of, one of my good friends, we constantly are sitting around a table of, of 12 people who we have very, very little in common with. And, and it can be very, very challenging. And so I was at a meeting a few weeks ago and, and I, had a, uh, I had a democratic socialist on one side of me, I had a neo-Marxist on the other side, I had a couple of atheists across the table at the end, and, uh, and then my friend, uh, friend Brent was sitting back over on this side and sometimes it's like, man, as we hear their perspective and we hear their ideology, Brent and I will kind of like look at each other like, what have we gotten ourselves into? This is insane. Um, <clears throat> but, but what we have found as we have begun to build relationship with those people is that, guess what? They are, in fact, made in the image of God. That there are things within inside of them that God has placed there, that they understand that, man, that's not right. And I need to be doing something to change that. Now, <clears throat> the way in which they want to change that is not a biblical narrative, is not a kingdom perspective. But guess what Brent and I wouldn't have if we weren't in that room? An opportunity to share a biblical narrative and a kingdom perspective and to be able to share how it is that God really feels about them and how it is that God really feels about the people that they are trying to help. And their minds begin to change and they're like, wait, so you, you Christians, like you're not all as crazy as you seem or you're not what I've been told that you were for years? I mean, what's crazy is for, for some of them, we're the first Christians they've ever met. But what a greater place to meet than a place where we're actually working for justice to help serve and to care for people. And so you find yourself, when, when, your kingdom, when you have a kingdom mindset and a perspective, you find yourself in places you didn't think you would find yourself. When I was in Sunday school and seven, you know, as a seven-year-old, I didn't think like, hey, one day I'll be sitting around people that love the communist flag more than they love, you know, uh, more than they love ours. Like that would have, you know, that would have never happened because we had like three American flags up on the stage, right? Because that's kingdom. And, 
Not that I don't love America. I don't want you to hear me wrong. But, but sometimes there is a perspective that, that gets people thinking that one thing is more valuable than another. When the most valuable thing is to be seated with Jesus, looking at things through his lens and his perspective. I told J- Jonathan I'd try not to offend anybody, so I'll quit riffing and go back to my notes here. Um, but the fifth thing, and I told you there were four, but the fifth thing is to do this. To repeat the above four things about a thousand times. You just have to keep doing those things in order to keep a lockstep with what Father God is wanting you to do. So let me end with this. Isaiah 58, verses 10 through 12 says this. Then your light will shine out from the darkness, and the darkness around you will be as bright as day. The Lord will guide you continually, watering your life when you are dry and keeping you healthy too. You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. Your children will rebuild the deserted cities. Then you will be known as the people who rebuild their walls and cities. What more does Father God want for us? As his men and women, as his ambassadors, than to be able to rebuild lives, to be able to rebuild cities, to be able to rebuild this wonderful world that he created for us. Amen? All right, let me pray for us. Father, I ask that, again, you would weed out whatever was of me and allow whatever was of you um, to remain, Father. But God, that our hearts would be turned towards you and towards the fellow imagers of you that we live with. God, that we would be able to see them from your perspective, to be able to love them with your heart, to be able to care with them, care for them with our hands. And I ask you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.